came west from his native Cleveland with hope of making a name for himself as a writer. But for decades now, the name Michael Krasny has been associated with talk radio in Northern California. In the 1980s, he made a name for himself at KGO, the 50,000-watt Bay Area powerhouse of commercial radio. Mr. Krasny subsequently moved on to KQED, considered by many to be the nation's foremost public radio station. His program, Forum, has become the most popular local public radio program in the nation. As the rest of the radio world moved toward ever more garish antics to say nothing of a distinctive right-wing political tilt, Forum continues to stay the course in providing intelligent and reasoned discourse. Forum's award-winning programming on current events, culture, science, and especially the arts owes its distinctive approach to its host. When he's not before the mic as a radio host, Dr. Krasny is employed as a professor of English at San Francisco State University. While the great American novel has to date escaped him, Michael Krasny has put pen to paper in Off Mike, a memoir of talk radio and literary life. We caught up with him last month at the Avid Reader here in Davis, where he came to do some readings from the book. Michael Krasny agreed in principle to doing the interview with us then, and we're happy to report that unlike Otto von Bismarck, who once said, when you agree to something in principle, it means you have no intention of putting it into practice, Mr. Krasny is indeed going to join us for a chat. As conscious imitators of what he does on Forum, we're very pleased to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Michael Krasny. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Your show is notable for its, its civil tone and taking the high road in its approach to public affairs. But you reveal in your book that you were a bit of a rowdy in high school. So my uh, first question is, have any mothers of teenagers told you they've given them hope for their own wayward sons? <laughs> uh, I haven't heard that yet, but... Uh... <laughs> I certainly think that the, that the book may speak to that issue. Not only sons, I ought to add, but daughters. I had uh, a bit of a wayward daughter myself, and uh, I hope that maybe my own life was instructive to her because she was acting out in different ways. I was hanging around with the wild kids, and she was, I don't know, more acting out at home, I suppose, than out uh, on the streets. But I think that there may be some wisdom there. I hope so. Well, I, I was surprised to note, uh, as a consequence of, I guess it would be called really your gang membership as a teen, that, that on occasion you've given in to some sort of testosterone-fueled impulses. You had a great story about pacifying a Marin theater filled with hooligans when you menaced them with a baseball bat. It was quite a, a vivid portrait of a different Michael Krause than the one the public sees. Well, probably different than the man who's now long in the tooth, too. But I was trying to at least give a characterization of myself that was honest uh, when I was younger and when I was much more filled with, <laughs> call it testosterone or whatever, but certainly a lot more anger, both anger in terms of politics and uh, feeling of seething at uh, a lot of things that were going on in the world and the lack of equity and, and the sort of uh, social injustices and those things, but also personal reactive kind of anger. And I think that a lot, I, from what I understand, you know, there are a lot of men and women who identify very strongly with that. Uh, some Somebody misbehaves or this case throws a firecracker at your feet and you you get a little ballistic and there's not necessarily much to say in defense of that behavior in fact i wouldn't say anything in defense of it it's just that you have to kind of mediate those impulses and get them under control if your <laughs> your impulses uh are going to lead you into violence well i guess I, to me it sort of showed you to be really a, a regular guy willing to do what was needed physically but i, I guess your wife certainly disagreed <laughs> Well, she didn't want me to go ballistic, and I can understand that. Uh, she had a lot to do with taming me and domesticating me, as wives are sometimes wont to do. And I think that it was important for me to be upfront and, and honest, because uh, I've certainly 
I hope earned a reputation as being a fairly common tranquil presence on the air, and I am that person on the air, but I was also somebody who was uh, at one time in a different incarnation perhaps, and maybe even with vestiges today. I just had an incident not too long ago, somebody cut me off, this happens to people all the time, and I, uh, Pavlovian just honked my horn, and the guy turned around and gave me the finger very uh, brazenly, and I again, I had to kind of keep myself in check because I wanted to go after him. Yeah. <laughs> but I think a lot of people deal with this on just a day-to-day level. Well, Off Mike is really two books. One part's mostly autobiographical. The other is reflections on people you've interviewed. Uh, I'd like to um, ask you about some of those people you interviewed, starting with the recently departed Norman Mailer. And Mailer in particular because it was widely noted in his obituaries that he never quite lived up to being the author everyone hoped that he would be. But he did start The Village Voice and become a figure in the national discussion of issues, which are sort of parallel, parallel themes to your book. Well, I hope I'm bringing discussion to national issues. And like you say, the book is a twofer in many ways. It's uh, two books in one. It's personal narration, and it's also uh, focus uh, and vignettes, particularly on writers. Writers is a broad category. In my case, it includes people like uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Art Spiegelman and Larry David, a number of others. Mailer was a very important figure in my life, and certainly he looms in my book. In fact, as you get to the end of the book, you have Mailer talking in, I think, the last interview he gave uh, to me about getting old and being like a battleship going to port. I don't think he really wrote the great American novel. I think he came closest to doing that with The Naked and the Dead, which is an extraordinary war novel and probably, along with Stephen Crane and Hemingway, about the best in American letters. But I think he will be remembered not only for that novel and for other creative work of his, but particularly for this sort of new journalism, as it was called, and the books like uh, The Executioner's Song and Advertisements for Myself and uh, The Siege of Chicago and the books that he wrote about politics, even the book that he wrote about the shooting to the moon. He was an extraordinary figure with prodigious appetites and an amazing sense of being able to capture historical moments. And well, already I miss him, you know, because uh, uh, as I said, he was an important figure in my life. And we did a little tribute on the air to Mailer. And in that last interview, which was done at Herb Theater in San Francisco. When I interviewed him on stage, we took a cut out of it where he was actually talking about maybe coming back after death, thinking that perhaps he would get his wish granted in reincarnation to come back as a black athlete. <laughs> but then the story he told was, it was a wonderful story, charming and, and very funny. He said, he, somebody told him, well, you come back as a black athlete, but there are too many people who asked to come back as black athletes. So instead, the story went, the mailer was told he'd have to come back as a cockroach but as the fastest cockroach in Western civilization. <laughs> you, you have an anecdote uh, in, in your book about when you were in college in, in Ohio. George Lincoln Rockwell, head of the Nazi, America, as the American Nazi Party, came to speak. Uh, you felt he should be allowed to speak, but you set about trying to find a way to counter him. Can you talk about that episode? Well, I was pretty young, and I didn't like the bigotry that Rockwell was associated with. He was a guy who was a bit of a loony ter- character and headed up the American Nazi Party at the time. And the ideals then were that free speech ought to be operating, and uh, many still have those ideals, the ACLU, and, and to a great extent, those of us who work in public radio. I felt, however, that some protest, uh, some sign of uh, adversarial or, or counterpointing or whatever to these sort of ministrations of hate had to be organized, and I took it upon myself to do that. I was a young man, and not more than 20, 21 years old. I got a bunch of people on the campus to go, and it seemed like a good idea at the time, and I don't know that it wasn't a good idea, even now, but we went 
wearing white shirts and brown slacks. Black slacks, excuse me. <laughs> He's the one in the brown shirt. i got to get my <laughs> colors straight here. And uh, simply filed in without making any noise, sat down, and the, the idea was listen to him, don't show any response, don't show any uh, applause or anything, and then get up and leave. And we did that, and it was done uh, uniformly. And it was, I, I don't even know, you know, to this day, if it made much of an impression on Rockwell, he got up there and he ranted. And even though it was done successfully, I don't know what impact it had. Plus, there were a couple times when people muffled laughs because of the things he said. You know, he said things that were so outrageous that uh, even one time I had to muffle a laugh. He was talking about Trotsky, uh, Leon Trotsky, the famed communist revolutionary from Russia, having been a, a Jewish tailor on the east side of New York before he went off to become part of the Bolshevik Revolution. I, I had to stifle that one. But it taught me something about organization and social protest and unity and getting people in a kind of grassroots way together. It was an important lesson. You got started in broadcasting almost uh, by accident. Uh, can you talk about your first interview where you, you sat down with author Gore Vidal, who turned out to be a bit of a pill? Oh, a bit of a pill is a good way to put it. It was, it was a kind of fascinating performance because he was uh, nasty off-air. And this book of mine is called Off Mic, and I, I didn't write in any way to get even with anybody, uh, particularly not Gore, Gore Vidal. I, have, you know, I don't have any axe to grind. I wanted to tell the story, really, primarily, and... Uh, Peter Coyote gave me good advice and said, if you're writing an autobiography, don't write to get even or to settle scores. And I really did. I wanted to say what happened. And what happened was he was very icy and kind of nasty and surly and somewhat intoxicated and anti-Semitic to boot before we went on the air. When we went on the air, he suddenly became very alive and very uh, engaging and funny and caustic. It was like watching someone completely transform themselves for the camera. This is a TV interview for public television. And I'd never quite seen that kind of disparity in performance between the public and the private. When we went off the air, he was once again filled with what I describe as terminal Velchmerts, and he was just uh, as cold and sterile as he had been beforehand. But on the air, he was, he was a different kind of character. I met up with him about 20 years later, and I took it as a personal test of my own mettle to act professionally with him, and not to mention until we were off the air what had occurred in the way of content in our first interview. And it was interesting because I was kind of cool and distant and professional. And by this time, I honed a lot of my skills. And I just said before we went in the air, Mr. Vidal, we had another interview back in 1976 on television. Then we went on the air on radio, this was public radio. And he said, Michael, I remember our first interview quite well, and it was delightful. Anyway, uh, Afterward, I let him know what had gone on and what had transpired in that first interview. And he said to me, well, I don't remember it that way. And I said, I'm sure you don't, but I think, in fact, I know I remember it the right way. Do you find that a lot of people are on only when that red light uh, goes on and you go live? I know you say a lot of people, but there are certainly people who uh, will be nervous before the light goes on or they'll be somewhat more reserved or reticent and they know that that means they're supposed to perform. And they also know that suddenly it's not just the two of us, it's thousands of people listening, and that can make a big cognitive difference. On the other hand, I find some people to be affable and delightful off the air as well as on the air, or reticent off the air and then reticent on the air. What's challenging sometimes is finding where you can get the person to be most responsive and how you can build up some kind of immediate rapport where there's a kind of trust and there's a willingness to be open with you, 
you get people who come on the air who are nervous as hell. You get people who come on the air and our interns or our producers say they're impossible to work with, they're difficult, <laughs> they're truculent, and then they get on the air and they're as pleasant as can be because they're aware that they're putting their public personality out there. It's a, it's a fascinating phenomenon, really, just to observe. Um, but I find generally people are pretty consistent. You had a very curious parallel tale in the book. You went out to dinner with a couple of writers. One was very charming. The other was rather shy. You went on the air, and the two men had a complete reversal in personality. Yeah, you're speaking of Tobias Wolf and Richard Ford, and that was another one of those curious and almost inscrutable kinds of episodes because uh, it, would, it would be an understatement to say that Ford was charming uh, while we were having dinner. I mean, he was looking at me and telling me how delightful it was to be talking to me. And it was almost as if, you know, in a strange way, he was trying to win me over or sell me on how pleasant the man he was. And then when he was on stage, he became very difficult. More, he used the word pill before. This would be like, a, you know, a poison pill almost. <laughs> then when the interview was over, he was once again, just the opposite of a doll almost, you know. When the interview was over, he was very friendly again. And that was a great interview. And I looked at him like he'd just fallen out of a spaceship because I couldn't believe the disparity. That was a tough interview because it was not only interviewing Richard Ford, who was very difficult on stage, I was also obliged to be interviewing Tobias Wolf. And these are two really fine writers. I mean, whatever one says against Ford as a person, and there's much that's been said against Ford as a person, he is a fine writer. Although I like Wolf's work better, I found that Wolf was more pleasant on stage. He was, he wasn't that he was unpleasant off stage, he was just uh, much more quiet and, and subdued. Before you got onto KGO, you were, you were working for a small radio station in Marin, doing some, some public affairs, and you had some very, very amusing tales in there of how, how, how difficult it was early on to book guests and, and how sometimes they were in trouble when they did come in. And can, can you give us a few examples of, of those episodes? I'm actually very fond of that period uh, because Marin was, at the time, being lambasted in the newspapers. and On television, there was an NBC special called I Want It All Now, all about how... Marin was filled with hedonists who spent their time in hot tubs with peacock feathers. And somewhat to my embarrassment, I called the program Beyond the Hot Tub because I wanted to show that there were you know, people in Marin who were doing really important and, and significant things, and not only where humanity was concerned, but citizenship and just good works in general. I also, Barbara Boxer at the time was doing little editorials, which she called Boxer Shorts. And this is a, this is a, a pretty <laughs> amazing time because it was freeform radio. You know, you'd walk into KTIM and the plasmatics would be there. Or one, one night, uh, Doug Went, one of the guys who was on the air, came up to me and said, Mike Krasny, meet the king of reggae. This is Bob Marley. One of the, I suppose, most memorable stories in that vein was when Jerry Garcia came on and actually started uh, snorting cocaine with a spoon up his nose. <laughs> and I said, I went to a public service announcement. I said, Mr. Garcia, you, you can't do that anymore. And his response was, you can't? Oh, okay. <laughs> Put all this stuff away. <laughs> Somebody said, didn't he even offer you any cocaine? And <laughs> the answer is no. Um, those were pretty wild days. I interviewed Sally Stanford, for example, who was famous for having a house of prostitution and being the mayor of Sausalito. And I interviewed Daniel Ellsberg right after the, not long after the Pentagon Papers, and Rollo May, who was a great psychotherapist and humanistic psychologist. And um, just a, a real range of people who lived in Marin County, which at the time was, and, and still is to a great extent, a haven for people who can afford to live there, I suppose, but also a lot of celebrated people, a lot of people from the world of rock and roll. Grace Slick was on my program then, of Jefferson Starship. And, and I also wanted to do, as you indicated, a lot of 
public affairs type programs, which now I'm much more known for. But even at the time, I interviewed the Marin Hospice people, and I interviewed people who were doing a lot of community and civic work because that was also an important part to me of what I saw as my obligation of being an educator of the airwaves. And I, I was a, a bit uh, embryonic in terms of my own uh, development at the time, but I learned the trade there. I learned the craft there. It was very valuable in that sense, and then went on to what I call the big show of working at KGO Radio. We're speaking with Michael Krasny, the host of KQED's forum program about his new book, Off Mike, a memoir of talk radio and literary life. At a commercial station like KGO, you were, uh, you were already trying to do your University of the Airwaves approach, but uh, you were sort of challenged, I think, early on by this desire to promote what their phrase is, infotainment. Uh, so you had sort of a personal challenge, how to be relevant and, and not be boring. But um, I was... I was struck by a quote you put in the book. A manager told you, don't be afraid to insult people's intelligence. Most have little to insult. So you didn't do it management's way, but how did you persist in taking the high road? Well, I think I just persisted. Uh, I think that I disagreed with them. They, um, and, and the example you use, it was pretty clear to me that they insulted the intelligence of the listeners, and I never wanted to do that. And I always felt that if you bring the discourse level up, that the listeners will come along and will welcome it. And that was pretty much consistent with, with what I just intended to do and what I frankly did. And I was, a, you know, uh, in the wrong environment, uh, so to speak, or certainly a fish out of water or something along those lines. Uh, Doris Lessing just won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and I often think that, that one of those real telling epiphany moments for me in commercial radio was when this young uh, program director, who I've said became a high executive at ABC Radio and sort of embody the Dilbert Principle and the Peter Principle. He said to me, I had had Doris Lessing on the air. Before I tell you what he said to me, I should give you a little background. And that same week, I'd had the great journalistic doyen, Jessica Mitford, on the air. And the reason I had Doris Lessing was Somalia had broken out at the time, and she had written a book on Zimbabwe. She grew up in Rhodesia and wrote this wonderful book about Rhodesia and Zimbabwe, and I thought, this is really relevant to Somalia, and let's talk about it. And, of course, Jessica Mitford wrote the book about American way of death and funerals and how people get soaked when their loved ones die and all the chicanery that goes on. And this young program director took me aside and he said, Crash, you got to stop having these old broads on the air. <laughs> and I thought, maybe we've crossed a Rubicon here. You know, it was one thing to be on a commercial station and to feel that management wanted you constantly to, to dumb down and to go for the heat rather than the light and try to entertain as well as provide information, but maybe with more emphasis on entertainment. I just thought at that time, maybe this isn't for me, and it turned out I was right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about some of the people that uh, that you, you work with at KGO. I grew up in the Bay Area, and, and of course, uh, over the years, listened to what's well, hard not to listen to KGO with the, the powerful transmitter that they, that they put out. I've heard him in Hawaii. I've heard him in Central America. But um, when I listen to like Dr. Dean Adele as a physician, I've always appreciated how, how tough it is to do what he does. And then personally, I would I would never attempt it, but uh, we quote well, him a lot. Of... As a physician, so I didn't know you were a physician. That oh, was an yeah. old joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> we, we quote him a lot. I like his common sense approach to his social and medical issues. But uh, did you learn any broadcasting lessons from Dr. Dean? I don't know that I learned lessons from Dr. I learned a little from from many of the broadcasters I've listened to over the years, and I have listened to Dean, and Dean is a friend of mine, and uh, I think. In style, for example, we're similar in that we're both overly prepared, and he comes in with a lot of material. He just 
wings it. He doesn't interview people. I, I do that. And when I was at KGO, I would come in and wing it a lot or do what we called topicating, that is, go into topics. <laughs> they have their own lexicon for just about everything. And they even had names for what we did. We co- they were called communicasters in those days. And I was this communicaster who would come in and, and stir things up and get people to talk about whatever it was or interview someone, and that would bring in the calls. The idea being, of course, to do the show live and interactive. But Dean has uh, a certain kind of warmth as well uh, and a vitality, and I think that what he does, he does quite well. And I'm sure that I may have picked up some things through the years from listening to him from time to time. As I said, I think I learned from a number of those people at KGO that I worked with, that I listened to, uh, certainly Ron Owens and Lee Rogers. I don't see my politics as being necessarily in conjunction with either of those communicasters or talk show hosts, if you prefer. But I think you absorb things, even unconsciously, about craft. I write in the book, for example, about as a kid, many people of my era will remember watching like Mike Douglas or Jack Parr and Johnny Carson or Merv Griffin. I even learned from those guys, you know, without even realizing I was learning. I wanted to be a writer, so I was trying to pick up craft in terms of writing, and I was unconsciously picking up craft in terms of, well, what I do on the air. Yeah, I got to ask you about Lee Rogers. Uh, a former friend of mine used to be Dr. Dean's producer. She once gave me a tour of the station. I, I met Lee Rogers, told him I enjoyed his work. But I, I heard him years later on KSFO. I was stunned at this right-wing shtick that he's doing. Uh, so I guess I guess the question is, was he this closet conservative that was more moderate uh, when he was in KGO? Or is he is he like Michael Medved, someone sort of who appears to be hiring out to those who pay the best? I don't know. I, I like Lee, and, you know, KSFO, when it first came on, I thought, what is this? This is, somebody called it Zig Heil on your dial. You know, it really <laughs> did have that kind of right-wing cast to it, no no question. And, and Lee has become more conservative. When he was at KGO, he used to say to me, I'm considered a conservative here. In, in Chicago, I was a liberal, but this is San Francisco. And then I think probably what happened, because I saw it happen to Jim Eason, particularly a name that many will remember from the old KGO days, when he went on KSFO, he... I don't know if he was instructed to do this or it was his self-instructions, but he definitely took a sharp turn to the right, and I suspected Lee did as well. That was a station that was built, essentially, as a right-wing station and was built for conservative talk radio. And people said when Jack Swanson, who is himself a self-acclaimed liberal program director, who someone I like and, and have a nice relationship with, my leaving KGO might not have even happened if, J- if Jack Swanson had stayed on as program director, but he went up to Seattle and this uh, young, as I call him in the book, Dan Quayle-type guy took over. Jack was wont to point out that there had been tremendous success in conservative talk radio across the board, and the country was definitely turning right as far as talk radio was concerned, and he saw the handwriting on the wall. They bought KSFO. He said, well, it's San Francisco, but it's going to be an all-conservative station. There were people who thought he was nuts, but the station has flourished. And that's really how they judge things in commercial radio. Does it bring in the ads? And if it does, then it's flourishing. All right, we need to take a short break at this juncture, but we will continue our conversation with Michael Krasny about Off Mic, a memoir of talk radio and literary life, after this brief hiatus. You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack, and you may find yourself in another part of the world, and you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile, and you may find yourself in a beautiful house, with a beautiful wife, and you may ask yourself, 